The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. Today's episode is episode number 274. Just a reminder to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Also, check us out on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, and give our videos a thumbs up. If you have interest in advertising on our podcast, please reach out to us. We are over half a million downloads now with the podcast. And the nice thing about advertising on a podcast is that it's evergreen. So while today's video will go up on a certain date, it will be forever in the archives. And if you advertise, your ad will be forever in the archives. And when people go back and listen to earlier podcasts, your ad will be there. Just a suggestion. Today we have an interview with a gentleman named Johnny Martin. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know a lot about Johnny's story, except that he's a former addict and he's now clean and sober. So you and I together will get the details of Johnny's story. Let's talk to Johnny Martin. Johnny Martin. Jonathan Martin, Johnny Martin. I know you like Johnny. Thank you for being on the podcast today and sharing your story. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Awesome. So you take us back to where did you grow up? I really don't know very much about you. As I said in your intro, I said, I know he was a former addict and now he's clean and sober, but I don't know anything else. But tell us, give us your background. Where'd you grow up? So I was born in Miami in Florida and uh, uh, I kind of bounced around I want to say I, I technically I grew up in Alaska, in uh, in Sladotna. Um Why did you bounce fam- around? Was that family job or your dad or? No, so I never really met my biological father. I lived with my mom, and uh, at seven years old, so my mom's Colombian, and I got separated from her because you know she she did something you know with the Colombian and the nineteen eighties. You know trafficking and so she paid she she paid her dues and so i got separated from my mom and uh, i kind of went from house to house to house and eventually ended up in alaska and that was with a foster home no so i was i was very fortunate i was able to go um from miami to orlando with one of my mom's sisters and then from orlando to new jersey with one of her younger brothers and then when my mom got out, she asked for me and I went down to Columbia when I was, when I was about 10 years old, reunited with my mom. And then at almost 14, I went from Medellin, Colombia to Alaska, where my sister married a, a military uh, person in Fairbanks, Alaska. Wow. You, yeah. I, I mean, wow. It just looking at where you went and where you grew up that grew up that's quite that's quite something and at what age did you get introduced to alcohol or drugs whatever was the first one well i mean at what age i mean i guess in high school i i I started you know with marijuana with weed with some friends at parties and drinking and and then after that i I never really messed with it because i uh, i i got a scholarship for soccer and messing around in Washington with, with uh, you know, opioids, um, but nothing too crazy. And um, 
But when I got into- Sorry, I will interrupt you now and again. So you got a scholarship for soccer. That was for college, right? Correct. And previous to your scholarship, you were pretty much just doing marijuana? Or were you already yeah. doing opioids? No, I was just messing around with marijuana. That's all I was really doing in high school. And, you know, at the house party, just drinking. I never really got into anything, you know, deeper than that. It was just marijuana at the time. So how'd you get introduced to opioids? Uh, so a buddy of mine, he was a super good friend of mine. He, in one of the soccer games, he broke his leg. And so the doctor prescribed him opioids. And um, we just started breaking them down and snorting them. And we, we loved the high. And it wasn't anything where at that time I was like, oh, man, I love this. I just want to keep doing it now. It was just um, kind of recreational at that time. And uh, once I left college, though, and I, I got into the oil field in Alaska because I left Washington, I went back to Alaska and got into the oil field. I knew I was going to constantly be drug tested. So I was clean for a very long time and we would always get random UAs. OK, so you were. Yeah. OK, that makes sense. That's the kind of kind of occupation where they do drug testing, I think. Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay, so how long were you clean there when you were working in the oil fields? How long was that? What, what period of time? Uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I got in the, in the oil field. I became a crane operator at like 21 years old, running cranes on platforms and on land, onshore. And um, I, was, I was clean for probably to about 27, 28 years old. So six years, I'd, uh, you know, always get drug tested, always come out negative. But then... I uh, I met my wife and at the time here and there we would smoke weed and and, you know, and, and pop pills every once in a while at parties. And um, I knew I, I, I had a relationship with my boss where I, I knew he would tell me when I was going to get a UA. So I, I kind of knew how how much time or how much water I should be consuming to clean my system. So I kind of had like a little maybe like a cheat sheet mm. per se. Okay, so you still could kind of get by on your job. Yeah, yeah. Would you say that at that point, you know, with your wife and doing the pills and stuff, would you say you were heading into addiction? You were addicted? <sighs> was it still Man, recreational? So it was recreational, but the moment it, it, it went from recreational to becoming addicted was uh, my my ex-wife received an, an inheritance and... Uh, it was a lot of money. I had a, a home. We sold our home. We built a custom home to our liking. And she retired um, or she quit her job. She was a registered nurse. And now she has X amount of money. And so one thing led to another as far as like a at first it was a shopping addiction. She was just shopping, shopping, filling the house, like miscellaneous things that I just I had no idea what they were and, and why they looked pretty or cool or decoration. And so, um, so she quit her job and she had nothing to do. I kept working in the oil field and, and, um, I just noticed that she was just spending quite a, you know, quite a bit of money. I didn't, I tried talking to her, but at the same time it was, I figured, you know, this is her money. Um, I make my money and I, I'm not going to tell her how to really spend her money. As long as we're paying the bills, I thought that was okay. But the moment that we became or I became addicted to pills was the moment that one day I was looking for something in our room and I opened up a, a drawer 
and I found uh, aluminum foil and what appeared to be like a plastic part, like a tube of the pen. And it was like resin. And so I smelt it and I asked her and I kind of right there knew what she was doing. And so I asked her, I called her out on it and she said, it's not that big of a deal here. You should try. And I was thinking, all right, I'm going to try do reverse psychology, have her see that now her husband's doing it. And this is probably a bad idea. So I tried it in front of her and I just remember the taste for me was kind of like a a burnt marshmallow and I looked at her and I said, this isn't that bad. You're right. And what was that? Was it cocaine? No, it was uh, oxys. Oxy. Okay. So we had, we started doing oxys together. And I remember shortly after that weekend, we rented a hotel in Anchorage to get away from Sodatna, which is like a two, two and a half hour drive. And we stayed in Anchorage and we just went shopping and bought clothes and we were smoking pills like in parking lots and just having fun. And, and then in the hotel room, we were just constantly smoking. I, I just remember the feeling of it just nodding off and like waking up. I just remember like, wow, like I, I felt amazing. Like my body didn't hurt. I was next to my wife. You know, we had money. We were eating good. Everything was, you know, quote unquote, you know, in parentheses, everything was good, but it, it really wasn't. It was just the start. Okay. So then how did it progress from there? And typically what we know with some of the addicts or most of the addicts we've talked to, it may seem good now, but then kind of isn't so good. So tell me how it progressed from there. So it started progressing where, man, I, I, well, first off, I found out that in Alaska, you know, you, you get the thirties, the 30 milligrams, we called them birds. And, um, 10 of those were selling on the street for, for $500. And we were constantly, I mean, we were going through way more than that in a day. So I had an old back injury from uh, sports, from working out in the gym. And I knew that I could, I could go to the doctor and, just, you know, tell him my back's hurting. I mean, which my back does hurt. And I could manipulate the situation to get what I want. And that's exactly what happened. So I started getting my, my prescription and my ex-wife, you know, she was buying it from a friend and we just constantly had plenty, but with having plenty, of course, our, uh, what's the word, our, um, our consumption kept going up, right? Our body was wanting more because now your need what, two goes or three, up. Yeah. Yep. Correct. Yeah. So now like two or three doesn't do it. Four or five doesn't do it before, you know, I know we're spending more than, a few thousand dollars a day, you know, smoking these and sharing it with friends. And now I'm saying, okay, I need to go to my doctor and tell him I need more because I feel like I'm consuming more than what he told me. And I fe- I knew how to manipulate at that time. So I knew, I knew where we were going. I knew that we were already climbing, I guess, per se, you know, the ladder of addiction. Understood. Did you guys have kids? No, she has a kid. Um, so he's, I think, 19 or 20 right now. But when at that time he was living with us, he was a teenager. Um, you know, we, of course, we never did anything in, you know, in front of him or we never try to make it to where he, he would, uh, you know, maybe acknowledge or think that something was going on. Um, but of so course, he, he's a teenager. You I was going to say, so you don't think he knew? I think he no. probably absolutely did know. I, yeah, he had to have known because, I mean, I, 
I remember when we caught him with marijuana, right? So we caught him with marijuana by me, you know, snooping around his backpack. And so I, I'm sure, you know, whenever we would take away his iPad or Xbox, he would snoop in our room and, and probably find certain paraphernalia. So I, I know, you know, it, it hurts to say now. Understood. So when did you decide to get clean? I mean, you know, I know we talked about it before we were on air, you know, the point of the one of the points of this podcast is, and you may not be there yet. So tell us when you get there is what's the point at which you realized you actually had to do something about this. So it was, it was the, our needs were, our body wanted more. And I remember we would travel to Los Angeles and hang out and we, we, we thought we took enough and we had our, you know, my stepson at the time, we had our kid with us and we're celebrating my ex-wife's birthday and, and we were at a hotel and I remember we were running out and we were just, you know, having hot sweats. And so we literally had a friend just fly from Alaska to Los Angeles, come hang out with us as long as she brought us what we, what our body was requesting, you know, what our body was wanting was opioids. And so her friend flew down and we had, you know, her friend was an addict just like us, you know, and fortunately she was able to come out of it and um, she's very successful today and I'm happy for her. But when I really knew that it was getting to be bad was when I would have arguments with my ex-wife and manipulating her for the, maybe the last pill, right? Like we didn't, um, I, I ran out of all my, my prescription. I used hers. She didn't want to go to her friends anymore to pick, pick any more up, but I can manipulate her. And I just remember on my three weeks off, since I had a script, I didn't care being at work. I was abusing at work. I was running crank, you know, operating heavy equipment, machinery. And I just knew I was getting bad because I was hiding. She would send me care kits and hide them in cupcakes. And I just knew that I was already, we were already doing too much to figure out ways to, to bring the, the pills and sneak them in where work couldn't figure it out. And I remember just hiding in engine compartments and, and smoking these pills and, and then nodding off. And then people were like yelling at me, Hey, Johnny, are you okay? Wake up. And it's luckily I never got caught, but, and luckily I never harmed anyone. I really got lucky. Luckily you didn't die. Because you're, you're doing heavy yeah. machinery like that. That could be really bad. How much do you think you were taking about that time? How many milligrams would you say if you had to guess? Oh, man, if I had to guess, well, my breakfast, like I literally, like some, you know how some people charge their phone and their phone is charging right next to them in bed and you wake up and your phone's next to you. Well, I would wake up and my, my, I had a roll of foil. That was what was right next to me. And I would have to wake up. And in order for me to get out of bed and move and to do anything i'd say my breakfast was literally 10 or 12 pills smoking them wow. crushing them up and smoking and then i can get up and shower and then make breakfast and then again since i made breakfast i was like oh i'm gonna reward myself and smoke another five i mean it was it was up there yeah yeah okay so still haven't gotten there yet to your point of no return but it's getting bad so tell us how it progressed from there all right. So from there, um, I remember I tried getting clean. I said, you know, enough is enough. So, okay. So you're hiding it. You're running heavy equipment. You know, what made you quit? I mean, what was, what was your point there where you went, I got to stop this? 
So at that point, I just remembered I was constantly arguing with my wife. Uh, we weren't getting along anymore. It was just we we're both having the needs. And I just felt like, man, what's the purpose of this marriage? So I need I need to clean up. So I remember I, I asked her for a separation and I took a job out in the inlet in Alaska running a crane, a crawler crane on a barge. And I figured, hey, you know what? I'm not going to take anything with me. I'm going to keep a routine. I'm going to go to the gym and do what I have to do. And so I separated myself and um, I was getting clean, right? I'm out on the barge. I'm not abusing. I'm not thinking about it. I'm, I'm doing what I told myself I was going to do, which was work out and work long hours and work. Just stay occupied is key. And so one day I get a phone call from, you know, my my then wife and she was crying to me and she said, you know, she misses me and that she got robbed and that her, her dealers had went to the house when they were having a house party and they scoped out the, uh, the house and they locked her up in the room and tied her up and they just stole a bunch of my hunting equipment, a bunch of her jewelry. And I, so I felt bad. I said, you know what, if I'm getting clean, I could probably help her get clean and we can come out, you know, together. And so my, uh, my hitch got done at work. I went back to the house. I told her, Hey, I'm, I'm doing really good. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting cleaned and I'm going to help you out. And so we were trying to do the best we could to live, you know, a happy life. And, and then I relapsed, you know, I went back to the doctor and, and, and did the same thing. And, and then I, she caught me, you know, smoking them in the bathroom. And so of course she's doing it. And uh, so when I was going back real quick, uh, when I was on the barge, I, I told myself, you know, what, it's time to go see my mom, my mom in Colombia. And so I haven't at that time, I haven't seen my mom in almost 17 years. I mean, I would just see her via Skype, Zoom, Messenger, whatever it was at the time. And so I bought a ticket to Colombia. So now I told my ex-wife, hey, I'm going to be going to Colombia. I'm At that time, we were separated. But if you want, you're more than welcome to come with me. And so she came to Colombia. We bought my sister a ticket to Colombia. And this was the very first time my mom has, under one roof, has had all three kids, my, my younger brother, myself, and my older sister under the same roof. And I just remembered that my sister was only there for one week. And the only time... I think we only had like one picture because the one week she was there, all I wanted to do was look for drugs and abuse here in Medellin, Colombia. And I literally, I went to every clinic, every hospital that, and my mom thought that, you know, I had really severe back problems. So I'm making my mom take me to all these places. Cause at the time I couldn't talk Spanish. So my mom was really scared of me catching taxis and, and something happened to me on the street. So I manipulated my mom too and my sister and my family. Okay, fair enough. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or Call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, 
a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So now you're back with your ex-wife um, after she gets robbed and you relapse. And uh, so Columbia was after that. Yeah. So Columbia, yeah, Columbia was after the relapse and everything. And now we're, we're abusing, we're abusing in Medellin. Okay. So how and why did you get clean? Okay. So I just remembered time went by in Medellin. We were here for a month. And I remember the whole time it was just constantly looking for drugs. So when I flew back to Alaska with my ex-wife, I remember looking back at my pictures and I had no pictures. I had nothing with my family. And I looked over at my, at my uh, wife at the time and she was strung out. You know, her eyes were behind her head and her mouth was open. She had a plate of food. And I looked at her and I said, all right, I'm done. And I went to my job. I did a, a few weeks on the slope. And when I came back, I didn't tell her that I was coming back early. When I came back early, I, I saw her with another man in bed, both abusing. Nothing was nothing sexual was happening, but it was what I needed to see because I would always she would always yell and say that I was arguing with her. But I, I wasn't. And I think at that time, I was too naive to understand that she was really far gone with these drugs. And so when I looked at her or when I found out she was another guy and then just more chaotic problems happened, um, we had cameras in the house and she was saying that she was seeing me with other women in the house. And I, I was just like, man, she is making up some stories. Like, why would I bring women in the house when we have cameras? Like, and this is such a small town. And, um, and so I told my boss, my ex boss, everything that was going on. He's like, Johnny, I'm you, you're me. And he's telling me what I told him, like, you know, my ex-wife isn't eating. She only eats at night, which is sweets. She's arguing by herself. She's not sleeping. She's super skinny. What's your response? And I said, man, she, you know, she's gone. She's a drug addict. And so at that point, I said, all right, enough is enough. I called my mom. I said, mom, listen, I'm an addict. I'm sorry, but I promise you I'm going to clean up. I promise I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so I did exactly whatever it took. And, and that was leaving my ex-boss. He's, he's one of my idols in life. And I tell him every day. And, I, and I've told him my story. And um, so I had to leave my ex-boss and find a new job, which was working three weeks on, three weeks off, which would allow me to fully, you know, run equipment with a clear mind and, and have a gym routine. And then on my three weeks off, at that time, I was training in the gym, jiu-jitsu, MMA, whatever I could to just stay away from the house. And so I started getting clean and my ex-wife was, you know, continuing, progressing, getting worse. Um, she put a restraining order out on me. Um, she, 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 she stole my passport and her, uh, I remember, I mean, I had footage videos of me knocking on the door very calmly asking while she was locked in her room, asking for my passport. Um, when I called the troopers, they said, sorry, we have no one that can help you. 
And when she called the trooper saying she was fearing for her life and I was recording everything, um, they, they got there within two minutes <laughs> and it was just insane. And I got served with uh, 30 days of restraining order. And so I was living in my truck. A buddy of mine from the gym said, hey, Johnny, come live with me. So I started living with him. I got served with another 30 days. And then she tried serving me for a year and they denied it. And then she got arrested for stealing shoplifting. And then at that time, I started coming to Columbia every three weeks on my three weeks off. And I think that was the best choice because not only did I change my job, did I change where I lived, did I change my friends? It was like a circle, like where I, I was little living in Columbia, my favorite memories, and everything went circled back to where it all started for me, where I was at my happiest. And now I live in Medellin, Columbia. So. Okay, and so you just you didn't go to rehab, you just stopped, right? Okay, so what happened? Yes, correct. So I just stopped. I told my mom, I told my sister, I told, you know, my boss, I told people. And what I did was when I took this new job, I took suboxins with me. And so I remember my ex-wife, when we were signing the paperwork for my new position, um, I told her, listen, like, I need to quit. And I'm really scared and I'm nervous. And she goes, hey, why won't you try these suboxins? So-and-so does this. I said, okay, whatever it takes, I'm doing it. And so I would break them up, break them up in quarters, first thing in the morning, during lunchtime, midday again, and then at nighttime. And within for me, this this was for me, and I'm very fortunate it happened this way. It only took me about five days to a week. And after that, I kept my routine. I kept going to the gym. I kept staying motivated. I just kept occupied. That was the key for me because when I wasn't occupied, um, I, I would I would crave I would have cravings so I just knew that I had a very addict an addicted personality so I had to stay busy. Okay, but you're not doing Suboxone now, are you? No, 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 no. Oh, I I okay. haven't touched uh, opioids or Suboxones in four years. Well, you know, I, just very well done on being clean and Thank sober you. for four years. I I know it's not easy. Um, but that was why I had asked you if you'd done rehab, because I know that there is something called dope sick and that's typically what happens, but you were able to handle that with Suboxone and keep it kind of as a low dose. I mean, we have, we have heard from people who, you know, continue on Suboxone and I don't think it's meant to be a long-term thing. So well done you getting clean and sober. That's what's Thank important. You. And tell us what you're doing now, because you've got some pretty exciting things that you do to keep clean and sober, kind of keep you keep you focused. Yeah, so I came down to Medellin, Colombia, and, and I was coming here every three weeks. Um, we, during quarantine, you know, we, we were all in our apartments or houses or wherever we were, and um, my friends just bought mountain bikes, and we all started with mountain bikes. And I, was at, I, I would be at work because at that time I couldn't come back to Colombia. So they would send me videos of doing these epic climbs on these mountains and then talking about PRs, like personal records. And and I said, how hard can it really be to pedal a bike? It can't be that hard. I'm in great shape. I can do this, right? So finally, Columbia opens up. I show up. I buy a mountain bike. And I'm at this time, I mean, I was bodybuilding and I was pretty heavy and thick and lean. And I get on this bike and I'm climbing and I am cramping up five minutes. I cramp up. <laughs> And I look at my friends and they're just climbing like nothing. And I really wanted to throw this bike off this mountain, but I needed it to come back down. Yeah. So, so I told myself, keep with it. My friend said, keep with it. And so I did. 
I kept with it, kept with it. And, and then uh, I bought a road bike, kind of like the ones you see in Tour de France. Okay. So I, I buy this Tour de France road bike and now I'm watching all my times. I'm P, you know, doing PRs and I'm stoked, right? And now I'm beating my friends. I'm very competitive. And now it's, I'm looking at this bike and when I'm doing these climbs, I'm, I'm suffering because it hurts. But these climbs teach me that in order to get to the top, you have to go forward. Like, that's it. There's no other option. You have to keep pedaling. So I just, I kept looking at everything and I said, I had to go through my divorce. I had to become an, you know, addicted. This happened to me, but now I'm back in Colombia. Now I get to see my mom, not every three weeks I see my mom. And before it was 17 years. And everything needed to happen, but I, I needed to keep going forward, right? So I kept going forward. And then um, one day I decided to do what they call the world's longest climb in Colombia. And um, it took me five and a half hours. No, I did not stop pedaling. And after I achieved that, I just looked at everything else like, what else can I do? What else can I see and, and make a challenge for myself and, and continue to pro, you know, progress? Well, at that time, I met my business partner now, and um, he's a pro cyclist, and we met riding, and he didn't really, he looked at my size, and he looked at me, and he goes, I don't think you really ride. I said, just try me. And so we went out on a bike ride, and we were doing some really good climbs, and he goes, okay, you're really strong, and I'm going to teach you. And we just kept clicking, because we both had some traumatic problems, you know, growing up. He had a very similar story, and we just clicked like brothers. And um, he kept, he, he asked me what my goals were in life. And my goals were in life were to help as many people as I can possibly help while I'm here. And so he goes, that's funny because that's exactly how I think. Wow. And so, so one thing, you know, it's things started falling in place. We, we came up with this business opportunity. We call it, uh, this is our logo, La Vija Medellin. And it's a boutique hotel for cycling. And we've had people from Canada, from Spain, from Philly, from Miami come stay with us. And, and we just ride bikes and we share the same passion. And it's this, this cycling has, uh, I, I remember when I bought my bicycle and I told my coworkers and they looked at me like, I'm talking about this bicycle, like it was a Ferrari. And, <laughs> and each time I would go to work, I'm like, man, I just climbed this thing. I just did this PR. I just did this. I think I'm only going to work for, you know, maybe two more years because cycling is really making me think differently about life. Like we only have this one opportunity in life and I really love cycling the way it makes me feel. And then it was from two years to a year and a half to a year. And not even six months later, I quit my job from 15 years, you know, you know what I did. And it was because of a, a bicycle and who, who would have, you know, who would have thought that a bicycle wow. would make me feel this way. Wow. So I am very grateful for a bicycle for my <laughs> business partner for everything that has that this bike has brought because i've met a, a lot of really cool people i'm sure i am sure i i just think that's a wonderful story i think and you know you said something that you made me think is applicable to people just in recovery in general and that is to challenge yourself every day and set goals and you know, do more than you did the day before. Do you know what I mean? Because I know that Absolutely. I know the people who are sober, you know, like they really have to look at it one day at a time. But I like the whole mentality of what you've been doing. 
um, which is really to challenge yourself, if I may evaluate for you. And it's, um, it's just very well done to you. Yeah, correct. I mean, the, the most important thing is to really check in with yourself the morning of and, and really write down what it is that you want to accomplish that day or what do you want to accomplish that week or what your goals are, because words are very powerful. When I told my mom, I'm an addict. And when I told her, I promise you, I'm going to quit. Those words were very powerful. And so I kept my word and I did that. And I told her, the next thing I told her was, I promise that someday I'm not even going to have to go to the United States anymore. I will live here where I'm, I'm the happiest. And I I've done that now. And also a huge thanks to my business partner for making it happen. And now I'm here. So those words were powerful. And then I told my mom that mom, I'm going to impact so many people here in Colombia that like something big is going to happen. And I feel it. I feel it. And the people around me feel it when they say, Johnny, you carry some energy about you. And, and I love it because honestly, I see, I see people here. They make me feel happy. They, they, you know, every, in the mornings, everyone's always saying good morning. Everyone's happy that a lot of people are exercising. Um, it, it's just, I don't, I don't, it's very humbling. It's very humbling. I get it. I get it. Johnny, thank you for sharing your story with us. Can you say the name of your inn? Because I'm assuming that people could find your hotel here, but I didn't quite catch it. Okay. So um, right here, it's La Vija, La Vija Medellin. You can find us on on Instagram, La Vija Medellin. Okay. Spell La Villa though, right? V-I-L-L-A. I know you're saying it properly, but okay. And how do you spell, and I think we say Medellin here, don't we? Is it M-E-D-E-L-L-I-N? Okay. I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell the people listening who don't have the same accent, you do La Villa Medellin or La Villa Medellin if you talk like Johnny. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I, I really, I really appreciate you sharing your story and, you know, I know it's going to help other people. Your, your stories. You know, you you had to reach rock bottom. You did, but you turned it around, and you turned it around quite well, I might add. Yes. I mean, for the people that are listening that perhaps are struggling, is we can all do it, right? You have to really believe in yourself, and you have to check in with yourself and really look at your surroundings. Like, where are you? Who are your friends? That's what you need to check in. Maybe you have to make adjustments and, you know, when we're comfortable, we stay there. And in order to, you know, to progress, we have to be uncomfortable in situations to better ourselves. So please check in with yourself, find things to motivate yourself, write in a journal, read positive books, find new friends, but you guys can do it too. Believe me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. I wanted to give you the website where you can find Johnny's in, as he says, La Villa Medellin. We would look at it La Villa Medellin. And so the website is L A V I L L A M E D E L L I N dot bike. So if you are a cycler or if you, even if you aren't, if you're in recovery, um, uh, Johnny was saying that they do yoga. They do all kinds of fun things at this inn. Again, it's La Via Medellin dot bike, B-I-K-E. Or as Johnny says it, La Vija Medellin 
bike. Thank you so much for listening. If you or someone you know needs treatment, please reach out. Please get help now. That's the whole reason why we do this podcast is to help people get clean and sober. Johnny has done it. You can do it. Your loved ones can do it. It's just going to take a little bit of work. We'll be back again next week with another interview. Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.